0: Let's find out what it is. And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Coote Street Motel Six, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on the Coote Street Podcast. Here
1: we are, almost, almost to the spring of 2022, uh, and we're still wearing masks when I go out. At least uh, I was at the theater this afternoon. You had to be masked in the theater, and I, and, and you're. You don't. You don't have to wear a mask on a podcast, Jonathan. It's fine. You're home.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we still have to uh, mask here too, but not. But do you you think? Do you uh, you think you'll be able
1: to travel to the states? I bought a plane ticket. Will I I see you in Chicago? You better come here.
0: Yes. Okay. Although I am bothered by my bookings, although I would have booked differently than I have. I have booked the flights. I still might change them slightly, but it will take something unusual now to stop me coming. All of the regulations here in Western Australia are relaxing and they do seem to be around the world, slowly bit by bit relaxing. Uh, But I have a bought and paid for plane ticket that will see me in San Francisco and in Chicago. Um, I have wondered if I should also go to New York, which would mean an extra change but um i will be with you i'll be at shycon eight eight yes oh, it's seven. eight 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 it's eight uh, the- i was saying online if, if 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 the wonderful people who are running programming are listening to this would be happy to do a crude street podcast live for the first time in years it feels like
1: probably definitely in years it's the first time we've done anything in years. I was talking, uh, I find myself doing this the last couple of weeks. Uh, Charlie Jane Anders was in on her book tour. I should plug her uh, Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak, which is her sequel, which is a very enjoyable book. But, and I was saying, I haven't seen you since last year, by which I realized I meant 2019. And now every time I mm. say last year, I think for a minute and say, no, that was 2019. There are literally <laughs> two years missing.
0: I have not gotten outside of the city limits of Perth since October of 2019. Mm-hmm. So I am well and truly ready to go. I did unfortunately have to turn down an invitation to go to Korea. I was invited to the Seoul International Book mm-hmm. Fair in June, but that wasn't going to be possible. Maybe next year, who knows? But this year I will definitely, definitely be in Chicago. I'm looking forward to it. Um and if I can, although it's not super likely, maybe New Orleans, because that looks like a good convention as well mm-hmm. for fantasy. Yeah. So, yes. So, do I think it's going to be easy? I think it's going to be easier. You know, I, I don't have to do, do, get a negative test to come back into Perth for the first time in three years, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be transiting Singapore. Singapore's fairly you know, sensible and stable. I'll be going through San Francisco, staying with our dear friend, Ellen Clagis, friend of the podcast. Um, and yeah, then coming to, I'm just waiting for the hotel bookings to open up for Worldcon because obviously I want a convention booking hotel thing because
1: mm-hmm. otherwise
0: I'll be out on the street looking sad and I don't want to be ha- having to come from ages, having flown all the way around the world, having, I mean, the flights are long, Gary.
1: I know, and that's They're one of. The things, uh, and you're wearing a mask for going in and out of the various airports, and being you must be wearing a mask for something like twenty hours consecutively when you're traveling.
0: That distance. oh, more, more. I mean, if you, I mean, I don't know if it will change between now and my departure at the end of August, but at the moment, you have to wear a mask in ride share, you know, mm-hmm. uh, stuff. So if you were to get a. A Uber from your home to the airport. Arrive at the airport. You have to be masked in the airport, on the plane, out the other side, and then probably in the transfer at the other end. Could be longer. I mean, as an example of just how much fun I'm going to be having, and it's why I've broken up my flights. The return flight from San Francisco to Singapore, flying against the, you know, against the wind, as it were, is supposed to be 16 hours and 40 minutes long. Good grief. That's a long time to sit down, Gary. I'm going to be exercising a lot before I go. I'll have a nice
1: glass of whiskey waiting for you when you arrive.
0: (laughs) You know what I'm going to be craving? A hotel room and a shower.
1: (laughs) Ah, well, there's that
0: too. Well, you know? Actually, when you see me, I will be more relaxed because I the way I'm flying, and this, this is of no interest to the, the people at large. No, of course not. I'll be flying into San Francisco, overnighting in San Francisco with, with Ellen, flying to you, spending a week or so there in Chicago, flying back for three or four days in San Francisco, then home. So I will have had an, a, a, you know, 24 hours off the plane and be refreshed and ready to go.
1: For those concerned about the hotel, I expect this will be a large... Convention. I expect it'll be a large world con, even given the circumstances. Yeah. But the um, Hyatt Regency is an enormous hotel, and there's an equally enormous hotel right across the river from it. So uh, getting mm. stranded blocks and blocks away from the hotel is not really much of a risk.
0: Okay. Well, I know, I think the hotel bookings, I think, go out on April the 25th, and I, I believe that they are. $165 American a night, which means actually $193 American a night because America can't just tell us what things cost. Long we could, silence. but we choose not to. You really don't do. Okay, let me tell you what I wanted okay, to talk you about. Have you, said you, you have got an idea for a podcast. I, I do. We,
1: we make up ideas halfway into the podcast and call that a theme.
0: No, 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 no. I have a thing, and I'll be curious to see how you bounce off it. And then you said you had something you thought I didn't want to talk about. So maybe we'll talk about that too. Okay. So this week, for reasons not particularly clear to the world, I read for the very first time A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin. Really? But you've always talked about Tahanu as one of your favorite novels. I love Tahanu. I read Tahanu when it came out within about three weeks of it coming out, back in 1990 or whatever it was. So you read what
1: is essentially a corrective to another book, which you hadn't read, thought that corrective was a great novel, and now reading the novel that, had it not existed, Tahanu would not exist.
0: Yes. Well, true. That's very true. In fact, I then not only did I read Tahanu, I read The Other Wind and the later Earthsea stories as well, right? And this ties in. First of all, there's there's my impression of Wizard of Earthsea, but also the strange story of having it at all, right? Because whilst uh-huh. I'm not a book collector at all, I'm a book accumulator, and they uh-huh. are not the same things. There is coherence to what a book collector does, and there's rampant incoherence to what I do. So when I'm yes. 11 years old, 10 or 11 years old, I went to a children's bookstore in the city with some money that I had uh-huh. because I had... a paper route earning money and I bought a boxed set for some reason I cannot remember why of the three earth sea novels right mm-hmm. and I never read them I carried them right I have the original uh, paperback box set sitting in my on my bookshelf right now on red to this moment right I then um, well first of all I started to get sent books by publishers in the in the Nineties, and at some point I set aside a copy of the Earthsea Quartet, which sat on uh-huh. my sh- on my shelves and did until this week. But that's that's the one I read. I also married someone who had a set of signed paperbacks. Wow, of the Earthsea books, right? Which also sit on the shelf, and then, motivated by the beautiful art and a very competitive price, purchased a copy of the Books of Earthsea, which is the enormously large very lovely edition of Earthsea that Charles Vess Illustrated mm-hmm. and Joe Monty and Saga published. So i got four copies, four copies. And it was only this week that I read uh, Wizard of Earthsea, uh which, for a start, has freed me, Gary. I can get rid of all the other copies that we don't need. Right, I can get rid of the original box set that I've been carrying around on Red Forever. I don't need it anymore. I can't tell you why. Um, I also, we'll, we'll probably keep Marianne's signed paperbacks and the books of Earthsea, though. That's not a very good book to read. Let me ask let me say, say, something, yeah. something
1: related. I assume that Mary, your wife Marianne has read and probably loved the Earthsea books.
0: Yes, yes, and,
1: and yes. She, she's known all along that you've never read them. No, I don't think we ever read the conversation. That's probably what kept your marriage together. Have your daughters <sighs> read the Earthsea books? No. So this is, this is completely. So so this could be a brand new fantasy writer that nobody in your family has particularly.
0: What's a barrier to that happening, Gary? And can I tell you what the barrier is? Well, okay, I didn't tell me much that. like it that much.
1: Well, okay. I didn't much I like I was it going that much. to say I was going to say something along the lines of um okay, my confession is that I read it. I was an adult when I read it. I read very George. little children's fantasy when I was a kid. I to be honest, I thought it was beautifully written. I thought it was fine, and I it was a couple of years before I ever read the other two. It didn't compel me to read the whole trilogy. It didn't impress me yeah. nearly as much as the dispossessed did at the time. Uh, and I, I, I was thinking she's very good at this. Uh, I like com- what she's doing with the, you know, uh, indeterminate ethnicity of the characters, if that's a word or the, <laughs> but it wasn't nearly as f- just brimming with, Sophisticated political thought, the way uh, The Dispossessed was. The Dispossessed was my Le Guin gateway drug. I thought that this was the first really adult science fiction novel I'd ever read. Um, And it was not too far, not too much before that, that I read Earthsea for the first time. And to be honest, I've never gone back to reread it because my feeling is it's probably fine. It's probably pretty much (laughs) what I remembered.
0: I think it depends partly when you find it and how you respond. I mean, the what, what thing I struggled with the most with it was the um, the voice that it's written in. The way I originally described this to Marianne is I think A Wizard of Earthsea is the most told book I can think of. It has a really you, you are being told it by a storyteller in what feels like an older style of storytelling. And there is nowhere for your imagination to go other than exactly where she takes you. It is clear and unambiguous, but it fe- felt restrictive to read almost. I struggled mm. at times to, to progress with it. And it's interesting that Clute in the um, S.F. Encyclopedia describes it as having an austere voice which I think seems about right. Then Brian Atterbury just said um, this morning that he thinks it has more of like a communal kind of a voice. Like it's a community voice that's told it or or, that may be the wrong word, but certainly a communal voice, which I think is interesting. But I found it, you know, a, a bit of a struggle to read for what is a very short book.
1: Well, and I know it's I beloved
0: of millions, you know. Beloved, it's, it's,
1: it's beloved of millions. Uh, I think one of the things that I did like about it was at that time, reading a what seemed like a complete fantasy novel with a persuade, persuasive world. That was a relatively short book, and I, I, I thought she is able to do this in two hundred and some pages, and other people could tell exactly the same story in nine hundred pages.
0: Uh, not even two hundred pages, Gary. Well, not if even two hundred pages. If, if, no. If A Wizard of Earthsea is 65,000 words long, I would be surprised. Okay. So it's virtually a novella then. Or very close a bit to more. That. And, and, and actually, Charles, Charles Brown always yeah. used to talk about this, and so did um, Gardner when we would talk about it as well. And that is that um, there's that sense of, there's a different sense reading a novella of the kind of story it is. And I will say A Wizard of Earthsea does not read like a novella it reads like a novel. Yes,
1: I guess um, that's the thing. And,
0: <clears throat> and it's fairly contained. I haven't yet felt any urge to read the Tombs of Achuan yet, though I might. I'm far more likely to go and read. In fact, I will tell you what I'm thinking about reading next in a moment, but um, hmm. I'm far more likely to go and read something else. Um, though this sparked off as well. There is this thing of like great, we've touched on it before, but not gone into detail. Great books that you, know, you, you haven't read, but you could have read. Or should have read well, and arguably in our field you know look the, the the there's a trio of Le Guin books and then some short stories you should have read in a way, you know like a a wizard of Earthsea, Sea the dispossessed um the ladies of heaven and the collect the you know the her novellas those kind of things, and obviously the the, the ones who walk away from Omalas uh yeah, awards for forest those things,
1: yeah. Um, I mean, depending on when you say should then should for what reason, for what purpose, if you want to know sure. when, yeah, obviously, uh, I love, I, there are things of hers, which I read for the first time, uh, in the library of America, the Orsinian, uh, tales in the, the novel where they're, they're excellent. They're kind of alternate, uh, it's fantasy history that isn't really fantasy, but very well thought out. But I think those things, and, and it, it's interesting you're mentioning, um, Brian Atterbury, who worked with her on the Library of America editions of her work, and who knew her much better than I did, and yeah. she was very concerned with the storyteller's voice—was this kind of collective voice? That yeah. The, the ti- I think the title of the talk she gave when she was a guest at ICA was something like "Why We Gather Around the Campfire," and so yes. she was interested, and she had story, a story collection of Buffalo Gals, which was exploring oral storytelling techniques always coming home as exploring not only oral storytelling techniques but songs and that sort of thing um and all of those reflect what i one of the things i admired most about her throughout her career was that she was trying to find interesting new ways to tell stories i think she got very interested in kind of folk storytelling rhythms um, later on i think she started with that the It strikes me that her uh, best science fiction, which I still think is The Dispossessed, I think that more than I think of The uh, Left Hand of Darkness, was very complex. The characters were very uh, contemporary and and recognizable. They weren't fantasy characters. They weren't archetypes uh, in her science fiction. Um, But the other thing I think is that what this says is how you encounter a legendary author, a, a canonical author by almost anybody's definition of a canon, for the first time when you haven't read the books in the order you were supposed to have read them. Um, for example, I've, I've seen lots and lots in the last five or 10 years, probably, um, the sort of rediscovery of Octavia Butler, who was uh, considered yeah. an excellent science fiction writer when she was alive and family yeah. writer. And now you read people discovering Kindred and putting Kindred on the list of best science fiction books, even though it's not science fiction, uh, even by her <laughs> own terms. But yeah. I remember reading, I remember before I knew who she was, uh, the first book of hers I read was Clay's Ark, uh, which is an odd one, but it was really good. And it made me go back and read the first two books in that series. Um, and now I wonder people who start in with Parable of the Sower are starting in with a with a very good novel, but you're not getting a sense of the writer's career. And my guess is, do you need to have that sense of the writer's career? When you say you should read all these Le Guin things, that's if you want to know Le Guin. If you yes, want that's to read, very true. I, I think the
0: I, I think the best answer to the question that you raise is mm-hmm. you have to experience them however you do, the, the way mm-hmm. that piques your interest and just read. I mean, I think that I, and probably you, and people who are interested in reviewing and criticism and quote-unquote the field spend too much time thinking about the way to approach things, what you should read, having a broader picture of things, blah, blah, blah. Um, the way that any reader would encounter this is you read A Wizard of essay and you go, did I like that, did I not? Maybe I liked it enough to read another book by this person what 's another mm-hmm. book that 's around here maybe i 'll read four ways to forgiveness because well that 's what 's here well that 's not very typical. well, Nora 's always coming home. uh you see on the back of the book it recommends the dispossessed. You try that out. you know you wander around and you try different things, yeah, and I think that 's the right way to find them so i don 't think that anybody approaching Octavia Butler, who I first encountered through short fiction in asimov 's and then read Adulthood rights and Dawn, right? Uh-huh. Um, And still haven't read a couple of her books, right? I uh, read the parable books, whatever. But um I think you just have to allow it to be dynamic and organic. That way you'll actually get some kind of enjoyment out of it. I mean, my thing rather than what to do about encountering, and this is what my question is, what do you do about books? I mean, I have four sets of Rithsy, right? Mm-hmm. I have, I realized now, at least three sh- copies of the text of The Dispossessed hmm. and three or four copies of the text of The Lathers of Heaven. I didn't mean exactly. to, but Including that's Including
1: electronic copies?
0: No, no, oh. not. Oh. So, for oh. example, with The Dispossessed, back in the 90s, I started buying books from Eastern Press, who do leather editions. Uh-huh. I like to believe they're nice looking, even though a lot of them really aren't. But I kind of some like some of them, them are. Some of I, I and, and then uh, no, wait, 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 having go um, ahead finish finish. I was just going to say that having bought you know the Dispossessed and the Leatherbound Edition, this is the edition that's going to make me read this book. Fantastic, fantastic, uh-huh. I said. And then um, I was at a convention uh-huh. five years ago. It was a World Fantasy somewhere, I think. And back then there were good dealers rooms, right? They're not so much these yeah. days, but there were then. And one of the dealers had a fine condition, SF book club edition of the dispossessed, a reproduction uh, of the original first edition from Faber. Right. Um, and it was signed for like 40 mm. bucks. So I bought that. And then because I got caught up in conversation with you, actually, I think I bought the Hainish books from library of America in the slipcase edition. Mm-hmm. So that's three copies of the dispossessed. Now the, the, if you set aside the issue of Le Guin, which we shouldn't too much, first of all, how many copies do you need and what do you do with them, Gary? Which ones do you keep?
1: I don't tend to have multiple copies of the same book. And some cases books by good friends, I'll have different editions of, and I don't want to, give them up because my friends might see that i've gotten rid of them or something but uh, other than that i think the the main thing to do is you can without guilt i mean let's face it many of these writers whose books you're collecting are now dead they won't know if you sold their book to a book dealer you you can put it out on ebay well no it's 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 entirely reasonable to get rid of autographed first editions you don't
0: but what book dealer gary who'll take them
1: We'll I can them. give
0: you a couple of names.
1: I'm not in the so, middle the problem, of America. No, the, prob- the problem you have is that you, you can't mail anything from birth to anywhere else on earth. Otherwise, you'd be spending more on postage than they would pay you for it. Yes. Yes, yes,
0: yes, yes, yes. So, yes, I have all the uh, – I said to Marianne this morning, my my new goal, I mean, because we've been talking about, like, how you downsize a book collection because mm. it's not something that's talked about a lot. I've, I've always said – well, always for about fifteen years now, I read this brilliant article by Bruce Gillespie, who is a, mm-hmm. a Hugo-nominated fan writer and has been doing a, publishing a fanzine SF commentary for decades.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And Bruce was a book reviewer, and he got many, many, many books sent to his house. And he talked about there's one point when he and his his wife decided they needed to downsize, and he he also did the that terrible piece of math that one day any reader will probably do that goes something like, it takes me X amount of time to read a book. I've got Y amount of time left on average. So I can only actually read Z amount of books, but somehow I have Z times 50 num- amount of books. Right? So what he did was he went through, they spent about like three months and they pull a book off the shelf, uh-huh. the on ones, read the first page. And if it didn't engage them, they got rid of it. And they talked about it being a very liberating thing. Now, look, it's it's not a foolproof thing. There's some gr- some great books that take longer than a page to get going. It's mm-hmm. absolutely true. But it is a method. And I'm aware that my children, for example, don't want to inherit my book accumulation. Yeah. So you've got to get rid of them. You don't need – so, and I'm going to start off with, I don't need four copies of The Dispossessed or four copies of uh, no, Earthsea. No, that's,
1: true. that's- that's easy to get rid of. I mean, I've got, I'm saving, I'm I'm facing the same thing. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly trying to downsize because I'm trying to at least keep up with the books that come into the house for review, but I've got a storage locker with dozens of boxes full of books. Many of those boxes have not been opened in 20 years. And some of them are probably relatively rare 1950s paperbacks. And some of them are probably just in terrible shape because I bought them in used bookstores because, I would read whatever I could get. I didn't. I was not thinking of myself as a collector at all. The problem seems to be, and I've seen this uh, on Facebook and talked to some friends who have who've done the same thing, who have moved house within the last few years and had to downsize hundreds or even thousands of books, and they're finding that there are fewer and fewer places that you can even donate these books to. Um, it's and true. The one thing, it's a real the one problem. One thing that goes completely goes against my grain, even even two year old. I don't know. Uh, World Almanac kinds of things I find it constitutionally almost unbearable to actually throw away a book of any kind and a book of fiction I'm thinking I, I'm going to have to do it at some point um, I,
0: I can, shouldn't admit this Gary but I have stood at the back of the post office where I get my mail I have opened mail and I have released books into the recycling at the back of the mailing at the post oh office I have.
1: I think the publishers, I know. all the major publishers should know about it. Mean, it's it's not.
0: Well, no, they uh, don't I, send me anything, Gary, so it's all right. Well, no, <laughs> but but no, but I, I got over the you can throw book away thing. Marianne hasn't, but anyway. So there's this thing, downsides to one copy, and then also it's like, okay, we've agreed, first rule of thumb, if you can find anywhere to get rid of books, give them away, release them into the yep. wild, do whatever right. That's great. Try not to throw them away because it feels like the wrong thing to do. But that's really just a sentimental thing, not a practical thing, right? Anyway, then there's only one copy, right? You only need one copy, unless of course, unless of course, it's a varied text, Gary. What about with ah. a varied text? Do you need that? Like for example, looks to the left. One of the best science fiction novels of the last thirty years, Jeff Ryman's Air. Uh huh. Right. They put out a galley, and then Jeff changed the book, and then they published the book. I have the galley and the book. Do I keep them all?
1: Well, the question is, what for, actually? I mean, if you're a Jeff Ryman scholar and you need to make that comparison, then uh, now now you're treading on my academic territory. If I were thinking about some point I might write something about Jeff Ryman, I'd think, it's great, I've got this. Um, And I'm holding on to it because I may need both copies at some point. The fact is, you will never need both copies. Um, if, if th- 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 there is no circumstance under which you will gain any social or economic benefit from knowing what is in the uh, in the arc that is not in the final novel. The best you could do would be to annoy Jeff with that knowledge.
0: I have two copies of Sleeping in Flame by Jonathan Carroll. Ah, are they different, different endings? Different endings.
1: Well, of course, you have to keep both of them in case he might write a third version. Oh, yes. those of you who are, who are listening to the podcast, okay. uh, Jonathan and I actually are looking at each other now, uh,
0: and he has just leaned are.
1: back to pick up what? A piece of paper, a, a, an arc,
0: a manuscript? I have a bound manuscript, not even like a publisher's bound manuscript, but an author's bound manuscript of Lyrial by Garth Nix. Uh-huh. Now, this is not Lyrial, daughter of the Clare, this is the version that precedes it being split into lyriel and Aborson. This is the huh. original version before it was totally rewritten. What about that? I think, actually, to be fair, I actually think, it says on it here, unedited manuscript, please do not copy or pass on. And these many years later, you'll note for the record that I've done neither, right? Probably it should quietly go into the recycling. But this is the original version of lyriel Do I throw that away?
1: I don't think so. I think you could probably find a, a, a Garth Nix collector who would be delighted to have it, uh, or no, possibly Garth, no.
0: Garth himself. This is a bad example. Garth would want me to, to destroy it, and I will. But okay. I can understand that too. I have more. I have more uh, copies of Le Guin books than Le Guin wrote, but not all of Le Guin books. Do I need them all? Do I need all all of the Terry Pratchett books, for example? You know. Do I need and wings?
1: Well, okay, here's dirt? another question. Here's another question when you talk about Le Guin. You may not go back and read The Wizard of Earth Sea because it does seem somewhat austere. It doesn't have uh, the excitement you might have gotten out of it at a younger age. When you talk about Terry Pratchett, and I talked to my partner, Dale, who's an enormous Terry Pratchett fan, there's a question of rereadability. Uh, there's a question of things that you go back and look at because – they're enormously entertaining in addition to having all kinds of uh, serious subtext to them. Um, I probably, in, in terms of Le Guin, I probably wouldn't reread The Left Hand of Darkness again. Uh, I've taught it a few times. You pretty much know what it is. The Dispossessed I find interesting. Uh, the Lathe of Heaven I think is one of her most underrated novels. So
0: mm-hmm. there are
1: times when I would want to go back and look at certain things. And not necessarily to reread them. But if I'm seeing somebody, for example, who is ripping off a Le Guin idea, and this has to do with reviewing and criticism, if a book reminds me of another book, I'll kind of want to have that book available to see if the similarities are what I think they are.
0: But then consider the issue of quote-unquote availability. I remember, and I don't know if it's held true over time, I remember Corey Doctorow saying in an article he wrote somewhere, Mm-hmm. that he had made the decision to get rid of his entire physical book collection because mm-hmm. he'd realized that, first of all, he was paying a pile of money to store it. So it wasn't, didn't make economic sense. I'm doing sense. that myself. And he could, get, he could get a copy of any book that he wanted from, from Amazon for a buck sent to him basically in some readable version, yeah. which I'm sure is mostly true. So it's like, does it make sense? Do you need to? And then- right? Because there's no, there's no absolute answers there. My feeling for what it's worth, by the way, is one, don't keep duplicates. Two, you don't need to have everything by the author, as tempting as it might sound. Three, um, you don't need to, um, keep any book. You probably don't need to keep any book you don't expect to reread. That's probably true. No, that probably should be the, the, the goal. Um, the, the funny thing, though, is what happens though as well, Gary, when, and this is a just a mad thing. What happens when you go to reread a book and you find you want to reread it but you for weird aesthetic reasons you don't want to reread the copy you have
1: Okay that's just bizarre that doesn't make any
0: sense to me at Thank all Thank you welcome to my world Okay <laughs> well, I will give you an example can I give you an example Okay He goes I knew you must have an example here's the example So when I posted about um not having read a Wizard of Earthsea on tour this week, mm-hmm. and then my impressions of it, which I gave some idea of. I got a number of responses, including from uh, David Moore. Now, David is a friend, a good friend of mine, and he's also senior editor at Solaris in the UK. Mm-hmm. And he pointed out, as great as it was, that what was really impressive to him was that Terry Pratchett had had the balls to write an entire novel that effectively said to Ursula K. Le Guin, A Wizard of Earthsea wasn't feminist enough. Look at this. Really? Yeah. Uh, what's the now, I knew It's interesting. I knew. Uh, I'll come to that in two seconds. I knew The Color of Magic, right? The Color oh. of Magic riffs on a whole bunch. On, it's like it, The Color of Magic isn't really a novel. It's a, a group of novellas, each of which riffs on a particular world, you know, mm. uh, Conan, uh, Pern, whatever else. But Equal Rights. Equal Rights. The third. Discworld novel is actually, according to David, a, a a response, an answer, an argument with A Wizard of Earthsea. So I went to pull it out. Uh-huh. Pulled it out. And I thought, I have a copy of that. And yea and verily, I have the, I, I assume there was a hardcover, I have the first edition paperback, which came out in 1987 and cost the principal sum of $8.95 Australian, which isn't very, hmm. it would cost you $30 now. But anyway. And I looked at this, this little tiny type in this little tiny paperback, and I thought, I kind of want a digital copy or something else to read it in. I probably won't because ah. it's insane, but I kind of wanted something else to read it in. Um, so, yeah. What do you hold I just, Gary? I, I just got handed this. There you go. New, is that the first New edition? American.
1: Is this a first edition? It's a signature oh. American library. I guess it is. How about that? There you go. And that's of what, sorry? Equal rights. Uh, equal rights, yeah. I mean, uh, my question sorry? now is, okay, but this is exactly the point I was making about holding on to books. Here you are reading The Wizard of Earthsea. You hear now that maybe it's uh, maybe, maybe Le Guin was, in fact, influenced by Terry Pratchett, uh, which wouldn't surprise me at all.
0: To no, no, reconsider. Pratchett was influenced by Le Guin.
1: But if, if Pratchett is responding to Le Guin, did, sure, she sure. Okay, yeah. look at this, did she take this critique to heart? My point is this. You're reading Wizard of Earthsea. You had no idea that at any point, a Wizard of Earthsea would cause you to go to yourself and want to pull out a copy of Equal Rights. It's
0: true. So, no, no, and so and your point's right. I mean, that's, I mean, you're arguing against getting rid of books, right? Because you're going, well, hang on. You didn't know you'd want to reread the Equal Rights. Exactly. But then exactly. my point is, I can get a copy on my my Kindle for less than a cup of coffee,
1: Gary. I've had the same experience. There are books that I've, there are times when I have a, just just like Corey, I have a a storage locker, which I pay a fortune for, which is largely, but not entirely full of books. And occasionally I'll think that book is over in the storage locker. I can go over there and start unpacking boxes and spend a half day getting it. Or I can order another copy of exactly the same edition from Amazon or, 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 or via Libre or someplace and have it here in a couple of days, which is easier. Um, and it's a difficult question to answer.
0: And it's interesting that as nice as the copy of Equal Rights that Dale has that you hold up, this huh. paperback is the first edition. Oh, really?
1: Yeah. Well, that's Brit. Of course, that's the British edition. This is the first American edition, I guess.
0: Yes. That'll that probably means. be the first hardcover, is my guess. This is. Yeah. This is also getting into things. But anyway, so my point was: How do you go through getting? What do you get rid of? I don't know. I have. I don't have sets. I don't have like a nice neat set of something. There is, no nice, nice, ne- there is no nice neat set of Le Guin. Personally, like I don't know that I could resist if someone did a Le Guin library and you got uniform editions, all the same size, laid out nicely. They never will, but I don't know I could resist Well, a it. lot,
1: of, a lot of Le Guin is
0: in mm-hmm. the Library of America is up to four or
1: five volumes now, I think.
0: Yeah, now nah, they've only got a batch of it. Yeah. Um, and I don't know whether they're going to continue. I think, I mean, they did the you know the the trilogy, voices, gifts, and whatever it was, which don't feel like major books to me. But they don't have things like Lavinia, and they don't have a bunch of things, so they don't. But hmm. but 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 even then, honestly, I'm an old man, Gary. They're little print. Little oh, teen. that's true. Uh, it, it, it's
1: very high quality print, which is fine. But, but I mean, uh, when you start talking about- <laughs> yes, I'll be, I'll be able books, to read it for many
0: years to come.
1: Well, <laughs> but, but there, there, there's the collector, or I, I would say the interior decorator mentality. This is where collected sets from. This is why you go into stately homes in England and they have 40 volumes of Sir Walter Scott novels that nobody has read since 1917. Um, but if they are yeah. really good in the library of the manor house, don't they? And there it's are people true, who, who who want sets of books for that reason. Those kinds of sets of books really by and large don't exist anymore. And the ones that did exist have been on people's, how do I get rid of this list for centuries now? How many complete <laughs> sets of Bulwer-Lytton are out there? I used to work in a used bookstore. People would come in with volume 37 of the collected works of Bulwer-Lytton. And I thought, Somewhere there is a library that has all 40 volumes and nobody is ever reading them again. Um,
0: On the other hand, I have the collected stories of Robert Silverberg and I in a uniform edition from Subterranean. I have the collected stories of Theodore Sturgeon
1: in a uniform North Atlantic from Atlantic,
0: yeah. right? And I, I like them. I asked myself if they, let's say that Subterranean, now I've got reasons why I don't think it'll ever happen, but let's say Subterranean announced, The Collected Stories of Ursula K. Le Guin. Mm -hmm. It would run for some volumes, right? Would you want that? Would you want to buy that? Is there interest in reading. i
1: a Le Guin scholar. There was a two volume uh, Small Beer Press edition of her short fiction uh, a few years ago,
0: Uh, the
1: title of which was. Uh.
0: I just put them away a minute ago. Where are they? Uh, Where did you go? Oh, goodness. At any rate, the unreal and the real is what the
1: unreal and the real, and those were self curated. Those that's her choice of essentially the best of Ursula Le Guin, or at least the most representative. Uh, That plus the fact that she also supervised the first few volumes coming out from the Library of America. I don't want the complete short stories of somebody unless I'm going to do a paper or a book on that person, and I'm perfectly happy to have two volumes of the stories that Ursula Le Guin wants me to read. Um, like I'm going to spring a surprise well, on her and
0: tell her that this hmm? probably for short fiction for Le Guin for what it's worth, which is minimal for is just me talking, the essential Le Guin short fiction would be three books, not two. There's a third book that Subterranean sorry that uh, didn't get to publish, which is ah. The Found and the Lost, the Collected Novellas of Wrestler K. Le Guin. Right. An eight hundred page collection of novellas put out by Saga in twenty sixteen or twenty eighteen or something. That, along with the other two, those two collections, covers the core of what you need, right? Um, which is great. Um, there are other authors, like if someone said they were going to do a collected stories of Howard Waldrop, all 80 odd of them, I don't know, I have all that, all of the stories in other editions, but I'd be tempted, I'd be tempted, Gary. I would tell you what's weirdly out of print to vessel circle around in this incoherent conversation. I was shocked. Sort of, to find out that what that not all of Le Guin's essay collections are in print. And I was particularly shocked to find that the languages of the night, which is the essays in fantasy and science fiction that was written by Le Guin and edited by Susan Wood yes. is out of print and has been out of print since nineteen ninety two.
1: Really, I did not know that.
0: Mm. And I would very much like to read a copy of this book for a variety of reasons. Some of those essays and it's have been quite expensive on the resale time. market.
1: Yeah, uh, but, but, it, no, but there's no clear map. As to... I mean, that was one of the most important no...
0: critical books.
1: Go, go ahead and finish your thought.
0: No, no, no. I was just say, there's no clear map as to which. Right. No, so like from uh, Elfland to, to to Poughkeepsie is reprinted everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a few others, but there's no clear thing that says, well, this has most of that. And so, well, I mean, one of the things I, I mean i to say is that the, there's that apart from being a collection of Le
1: Guin, there's a collection of important books about science fiction by science fiction writers or fantasy writers, whatever. And that was the first one. I mean, Le Guin did not put that together, but she was, she gave Susan Wood's blessing, I guess. And that came out, uh, you know, uh, around the time that, Uh, Samuel Delaney was publishing his essays about science fiction, which were very important, and Joanna Mm -hmm. Russ was publishing her essays. They eventually got collected. uh, In the case of uh, Delaney, they've been in multiple volumes now from uh, Wesleyan University Press. um, And I guess Liverpool published uh, a couple of books of essays of, uh, of Russ. But... That that is something to me that seems to me almost as important if you're understanding the shape and history of the field as actually having the books themselves. Because as you mentioned, if you want to get a Le Guin novel, uh, you can get it on your Kindle within minutes. If you want to get the language of the night, it sounds like you're out of luck.
0: If you right now, if you want to get the languages of the night, you have to go onto something like ABE and yeah. go looking around for a used copy. Um I had assumed that I mean like there'd be a digital copy. So for example, because I was looking for, I mean, obviously it's pretty clear now to anyone listening here at home that there is some reason why Jonathan would be looking at um the the writings of Ursula Le Guin. And there is. But ah. Golan's published Dreams Must Explain Themselves, which is an eight hundred page collection of the selected nonfiction of Le Guin. Ah. And I've got a hold of a copy of that through digital means, but, um, there's this part of me that was was like, languages of the night sounds like the book I need to read for what I'm doing, but I can't get it. You know, I thought I could buy, buy a $5 Kindle copy and I would have bought it in two seconds. Uh, someone has suggested on my social media that maybe Susan Woods estate is the issue in finding that and getting it sorted, but I would love to see it. I would love to see someone do a real, you know, proper set of essays Because obviously, well, not obviously, in the North American market, I don't think there is one. There's a pair of essays available, of essay volumes that came out, Words Are My Matter and No Time to Spare. Uh, But I don't know to what extent they overlap. Well,
1: you can certainly read my copy of Languages of the Night while you're in Chicago. You don't need to go to this convention. Just sit here
0: and (laughs) and read. (laughs) Thank you. The problem is, I need to read it this weekend. Could you like photocopy Ah. it for me? Photocopy? (laughs) Sure. Or could you Man. just hold it up to the, you know, the, the camera for eight hours, you know, what I try and I'll just I'll, no, I'll, no. I'll just I'll map hold it, I'll it up it to out.
1: the camera and turn pages rapidly and see how fast you can read.
0: So or this is my thing. My thing I is, don't
1: know. Uh,
0: this is my thing. I'm currently rediscovering Ursula K. Le Guin uh, at the moment, courtesy of having started with the Wizard of Earthsea, And I'm trying to work out about decluttering my home and getting rid of books and which ones to keep. You know, it's like, I look to my left and I see the more recent, because the book collection split up weirdly, Stan Robinson mm-hmm. books, right? And like, I know I'll keep the Ministry of the Future for as long as I can, because it's a truly brilliant book. I know I'll keep New York 2140, because it's a great book and I love it. Will I keep Red Moon? I don't know. Red Moon was Well, right. I mean,
1: there. Uh, Gallop- yeah, th- this is this is a problem which I think everybody faces sooner or later. And I think as you get older, you begin to think more like, do I need this? I will pull a book out of the shelf uh, occasionally and think, do I even remember having this or who this is by or why I have it? Um, and, <laughs> I, some, and if I don't remember anything about it or, and I hate to say this because it sounds cruel. If it's a, if it's an author who, Seemed promising, but whose career didn't really go anywhere. Uh, it's not somebody who's going to come up in any historical discussion. And this this can include perfectly fine writers. Um, there was actually uh, I'm I i do not know if I should mention a name or not because it's somebody who died a couple of weeks ago, but somebody who'd written some excellent short stories was somebody I'd met a couple of times as a good friend of friends of ours. I have one, I have his one collection of short stories. Um, His Mm -hmm. career never really took off. Uh, Am I ever going to go back and look at those stories again? Is anybody probably going to ask me if I have a copy of that book? Probably not. Um, There are books, there's no doubt, there are many, many books I could get rid of and never noticed that I'd gotten rid of them. Except, except every time I do it, the next Monday, something comes up (laughs) that specifically I need to go to that just Budras novel to find out the answer to this question. And if I'd gotten rid of it, that question would never have come up.
0: Maybe. That could be true. I mean, I'm looking at, for example, at my copy of uh, – what um, um, there's a Mary Doria Russell book over on my shelf. Uh, and it's not the, the the Sparrow, which is the one that we People should – Which do pick. The Sparrow? It's, yeah, maybe. And I just think, do I need to keep Mary D- Doria Russell books, Gary? No. Really I'm not, not gonna reread them. You know. Marianne read the Anne Rocolaire novels for some reason. Do we need to keep those? Probably not.
1: But here's a problem with a reviewer. Um, I mentioned Mary you mentioned the Sparrow, for example. And there are some novels that still echo that to some extent. Vanished Birds, to me, Simone Jimenez's novel, had a few echoes of Mary Dore Russell. Now, did I go back and check to see if I was remembering right? Probably not. Uh, but that, this is one of the things when you're, when you're writing reviews and thinking historically about the backgrounds of these reviews, I remember I didn't, I didn't ask Charlie Jane about this, but you know, there's a lot of the elements of her, uh, young adult trilogy, the, uh, the unstoppable trilogy, I think she's calling it, that must've been picked up from Doc Smith and from classic space operas. I mean, a lot of the plot elements are classic space opera elements, Does that mean in order to understand or appreciate that book, I need to go back and look at Doc Smith? God help me. No, I don't. Nothing really makes you have to go back and look at Doc Smith.
0: I got to admit, right? Like, I mean, for everybody who loves Doc Smith, go with God, right? And going back at one point, five, ten years ago, I happened to take a second look at Skylark of Space, which I Uh may even still own. I don't remember. Um, and I was surprised it opened with a scene of drug taking and whatever else. I'd forgotten ah. that. Hmm. But I'd forgotten the film. do I need to read Skylark of Space or the Lensman books again? No, Gary, I don't. And you know what? If I really, really, really do, I'm probably okay with buying a digital copy from somewhere or other for a minute. And well, the other I am, thing- and this is a slight difference. Also, I'm very worried that I don't leave all these books to my children to cope with. Well.
1: This is an issue which I think everybody faces who does who has not raised collectors, and most, of us, most people haven't raised collectors. What do you do with them? Sometimes you can do what Locust did with the Charles Brown Library and find a big university library that wants it, but you have to have a gigantic collection of valuable first editions in order to make that viable, and I don't, and I doubt if you I do.
0: I've got a few interesting things that collectors would want. I've got a first edition of Neuromancer and a few things like this, right? And people might be interested, and then books that I've accumulated or kept or not got rid of or whatever, um, and some of them make sense and some of them don't, so they they need to well, go. Well, anyway. make sense. This <gasps> is you,
1: you, you mentioned going back to Le Guin. and like I say, I'll, I'll read, Le, I'll reread Le Guin short fiction, whether I'll reread novels or not. And I, I I sounded like a snob when I was talking about Doc Smith, which I who I will probably never reread, but occasionally I'll go back and look at an Edgar Rice Burroughs novel simply because of the energy of the prose. They're, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're racist and horrible and sexist and colonialist and all kinds of things, but he could keep a scene going very rapidly. You can, and the other thing is you could pretty much read a, a, a Burroughs novel in an hour. Uh, so there are things like that that when you want to see where the energy comes from for pulp fiction, I don't think you can do better than Burroughs. But again, that's kind of an academic thing. It's not really a collector's thing. You don't need to have any Mm -hmm. particular edition of Burroughs uh, for that. Um, In fact, one of the things I learned when I was working in a bookstore is that the editions of Edgar Rice Burroughs that show up everywhere in Chicago are published by Grosset and Dunlap, which was essentially a paperback publisher before there were paperbacks. They were cheap reprints of everything. And they're worth nothing. Um, But they're still a lot of fun to read. So that's part part of of what I'm thinking is, is there any entertainment value left? I mean, I, I don't want to go back and read the history of science fiction. I don't really want to go back and reread Garrett P. Service's Edison's Conquest of Mars or something like that. Because once you've read it, you know its place in history. So the only thing I'm thinking is now, are there is there enough entertainment value in this book to keep it? Um, and the answer for probably 80% of the books I own is probably not.
0: Yeah, that I think that's true. I think it's probably not, you know, and also it's, it's, it's not just that. It's like, what are you going to read? I mean, wh- I mean, like right now, I've got a ocean of new books that I should be reading. I'm still taking me much longer than I thought, making my way through the um, open reading period, or open submission period stories for the book of witches. I have a couple of novellas to look at for submission mm-hmm. and whatever it takes my fancy for actual personal reading. I don't have that much personal reading time. If I didn't read whatever that book was that I bought back then, The Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay, I've got a copy of uh-huh. that I picked up because people said it was great, and I don't doubt it's great, uh-huh. but I haven't found the time yet. You know, um, I don't know that I need to hang on to it, truthfully. owner by Samuel Delaney. Tried it a few times. Didn't like it, probably. No, Samuel it's... Delaney. Didn't, didn't love that. No, and and stars in my pocket is a truly great book.
1: Stars in my pocket's a great book. I think, I think, I think Nova and the Einstein Intersection. I, I mm. confessed I didn't get very far into through the Valley of the Nest of Spiders. Uh, but Ship said, "You don't." He himself said, "Look, if you want to understand me, you don't need to read that book." Uh, but he yeah. certainly yeah. Is, is so. Although he is very fond of the fond of the Navariona books. Uh, so there is that, but that has to do with people that you know and that you want to kind of, uh, you know, keep up with their work because you you wish them well as friends. It's not the same thing that uh, of following a writer that uh, is, is, is endlessly complicated. The other writer I would keep, and this came up because I was talking with some people about editing novellas or, or collected novels, are, are writers like Gene Wolfe, who I suspect I didn't really get completely the first time I read. Every time I reread a Gene Wolfe novella or story, I'm thinking, I find I'm finding things that I completely missed the last time I read it. And sometimes I may have yep. read it three or four times. I mean, Peace is a maddening novel. I know people who have read that three times and not figured out what's happening in it. And I'm not are sure you, that um, I did either the first time I read it.
0: Oh, we're going to guy. I've never finished reading the Book of the New Sun.
1: Um, that's fine. You don't have to. You don't have to have read the Silmarillion either. Uh, although I confess, okay, I did no, I Didn't
0: Gary? I didn't get to the end of the Lord of the Rings. I tried twice. Oh, you didn't get to the end of Lord of the Rings. No, I got as far as I got to the end did, bit, but they, just, they kept ending. Like you know, they kept ending and ending, and I just stopped. Well, it, it was an envoy.
1: It was. A, it was a kind of a gesture that you do at the end of an epic—it's not, uh, uh, but went on but and you, on. You, Gary. you knew what happened to the ring. You found out what happened to the ring, right? You didn't have to
0: wait for the movie. Oh no, 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 no! Okay. I, I did watch Return. I did watch Return of the King, not the extended edition, just to see what happened all the way to the end. Ah, uh, but I mean, I did read The Return of the King, barring the last. Like I just got to the last bit We're going, this is just going on and on. Stop. Yeah. Now and I read it twice, right? I read it in my teens, I read it in my twenties, haven't read it since, feel no urge to read it. But I do, it tells you a lot about the scrambled mess of my mind. I mean, you didn't really want to talk about collectors' editions books a little while ago, but I am very, 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 very tempted to buy the 40th edition, 40th anniversary edition, formerly the 25th anniversary edition of A Little, little Big bit. by John Crowley, published by Incarnabula. Mm-hmm. I've never read Little Big by John Crowley.
1: It's a beautiful novel. I mean, a lot of people find it, maybe austere is the word. Uh, There are John (laughs) Crowley. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm I'm an enormous fan of John Crowley's prose. And some of the novels of his that I like are not the ones that were the most successful ones. I mean, I like his Four Freedoms novel and that sort of thing. I did not. I I will confess, I did not finish the entire Egypt sequence, although I've thought the first two novels were terrific. Um, But uh, Little Big is one of those books which I think people who own, people who are fully in love with it, who are imprinted with it, that is a book that people will tell me they reread every year or every couple of years. Um, And it's a book that has genuine magic in it. I have no no argument with that. I don't think I'd reread it every year. uh, But Again, so it's maybe a I'll re, maybe
0: I'll buy that. There is possible. I, I was talking to Ron Drummond, who was devoted so much of his time and so much of his life to getting this edition into print. Yeah, and um, he was saying there may be copies for sale in Chicago hmm. of the Incarnabular Edition, and if there are, I think I might carry one home. I mean, because of the vagaries of the publishing, the, the, the freight world, the actual freight on it's pretty horrific, but um, I'm sure. I might, I might carry one home, along with some bottles of of whiskey.
1: I saw some pages from it a few years ago. I know John Berry was doing, I think, the typography for it. Looks like he's done uh, a great and, job. And it, it it's it looked great even then. This this is now actually complete. So that's that's a collectible. That's that's a kind of book which, if I bought that book, I would hesitate to read that copy of it.
0: Okay. I have now completely shot my credibility as a reader, uh, going forward. So having done so, there was another topic you wanted to touch on, and maybe we'll talk on about it next time, but cause we're about five, 10 minutes from the end. Well, okay, we, 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 let, let, let,
1: let me introduce this and we can talk about it next time, because I know okay. that I know that you get self-conscious if it looks like we're, um, sort of promoting your own books, but I've been reading someone in time, um, which is, and it's it's, the mo- it's it's the most unusual idea for an anthology that you've had yet probably, but what it made me think about and what you wrote about actually very knowledgeably in your introduction is the relationship between romance and science fiction, by which I don't mean romance as a genre in science fiction, but romance as a theme in science fiction and fantasy. Um, and mm-hmm. one of these, the, the, there's this whole tr- tradition which, um, I personally date to Robert uh, Nathan's portrait of Jenny, which is like 1940 or something, um, and all the way down to Audrey Niffenegger and this sort of thing. And there's, so, th- and, and the, you mentioned the uh, Ian McDonald novella uh, that uh, continues. So there's Time this well, very so. wistful, you know, star-crossed romance kind of thing. But the other thing that made me think of is that there are probably more grand romances in science fiction stories that we overlook because they're not the center of the story. In other words, the story is, I'm, I'm giving you a preview of the column I'll be sending in in a week or so. Yeah. If you look at the forever war as a relationship story between Mandela and and, and Potter, it's a, it's a great time-crossed romance. They keep going out on different Mm -hmm. missions and trying to arrive at the same place at the same time. They're alienated from everybody else in society because of the, uh, time effects. And it really, it's a grand romance, the novel, but no one notices that because everyone knows it's the forever war. It is the great milit. It's a great anti-war military science fiction novel. So I started thinking, are there other romances like this? And I started thinking, well, there's kind of a romance in the left hand of darkness, isn't there?
0: Um, Yes, there, there is, are, just as there are a couple in June.
1: Yeah. Uh, so 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 it made me think that this is not it, – it, it, it's a sub-genre. It's a specialty which has a lot to do with um, – uh, it can be time slips, which it actually is in Portrait of Jenny. She just grows older every few weeks, it seems. It can be relativistic time distortion. It can be actual time travel, whatever it is. Uh, as a kind of main genre. But what you had me thinking was how many of these great romances are there in science fiction that we don't think about?
0: And there are many, many. Oh, let me ask you, since you're reading someone in time, have you read the Catherine Valenti story yet? Yes, I have. What did you think? I think it's incredible.
1: I thought it exploded the whole notion uh, that you were dealing with, mm-hmm. with, with in terms of time. And she's having yes. an enormous, well, the thing about it, I, I, I like, I, I actually, I'm liking Kat Valenti's fiction. I, sh- I shouldn't say this because she'll feel, she'll get mad at me. I'm liking it a lot better in the last few years. I didn't read her earlier stuff at all, but there's just a sense of joyousness about that story, which you also get in the past is read a little bit. There's a sense of having absolute fun at inventing these there's myriad versions of uh, yeah. The, yeah. The, uh, the 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 space time continuum, I guess. Uh.
0: I think that we've hit a point with with Cat, uh, with her work, where she can do just about anything. There's a handful of writers around uh, who can, but that story threw me. Me like it, surprised me, and I, I really end up falling in love with it very much. Um, I had. Expected more stories. There's a story in there by Rowan Coleman, which is great, mm-hmm. uh, but it's much more like what I'd expected for the book. Whereas that story is the, much you know, to the left of it.
1: That is the one story in the book that completely harks back to the Robert Nathan novel, to the haunted bookshop stories. It's that's what I expected the book to be full of.
0: Yeah, and well, it's always good to have one of those things in a book. Let's face it.
1: I'm a you know, like for I, used, those. I remember.
0: What, yeah, I remember arguing I mean, with Under My Hat when I did that. You know, it's a book of YA witch stories. It's like you need an old lady in a black hat and a broomstick at least once. Just once, yeah. but you need one. Yeah, So, yeah. But I'm, I'm glad that you are enjoying the book because uh, you're right. It's not my, my, my want to talk a lot about what I do here. I think this is its own thing, and I don't want to be a, a promotional platform. I don't want to be sitting here going, you know, buy this book vote for this award, vote for this award, vote for that book. That doesn't feel like it's what we're here, here for. No. Um, and, or what our listeners particularly but, but want.
1: But I, I think the idea of romance as a recurring theme in science fiction is one worth talking about at some point.
0: I think you're right. We should talk about that. I think arguably at some point we should maybe reel in Brian Atterbury and Julie Phillips and talk about Le Guin again. That would be great. I think that could be fun. And I think we should continue to tell people they should reprint the languages of the night so I can get a copy, preferably very quickly.
1: Well, if there's anything in particular, you just call me up and I'll read it to you aloud.
0: It'll be like story time. (laughs) Academic story time with Gary. Yes, exactly. It's It's a whole other podcast. I can't wait. It might be a bit of a copyright violation, but it'd be fun. Well, it would be interesting. Okay. But our, Well, on that note, well, I we're, think we're pretty much
1: at an hour, it, right? At the hour point, yes. All right. Well, okay. So we will, in a couple of weeks, be talking about something else again. Maybe we'll keep this uh, romance idea in mind. Maybe we'll have a guest or two. Um, but It'll until nice. then, this has been – well, who? Well, Could until she we're podcast? back, this has been the Cood Street Podcast.